Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today's message comes from the Old Testament reading of 1 Samuel, as you heard a few moments ago. You may be seated. To your brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm going to be honest with you today in many ways. So I'll start off by saying that David is probably one of my favorite, if not my most favorite person in the Bible. And it's partially because I resonate with David and his life quite a bit. And as we see more of David in the coming weeks, maybe you'll resonate with him and his life a bit too. But there are also things that I probably don't see in myself as much with David that we've already learned about him. One of the first things that we found out about David is that he was a man after God's own heart. I mean, I like to think that that's me, but if I'm being really honest with myself, no. Probably not as well as I think. We also learned that after Samuel anointed David, David was filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, I am a believing, baptized child of God, and the Holy Spirit is present in baptism, giving faith, so I can say that I'm also filled with the Holy Spirit. Shortly after David is anointed, he finds himself on the battlefield, hearing Goliath talk crap about the people of Israel and, and about God. And David, he knew that God was on his side, and that God had already delivered him from bears and lions, and there wasn't anything that he needed to be afraid of. So he was ready to face any giant, no matter how scary it was, even a, a nine-foot-tall Goliath. And David was victorious. God delivered Goliath into his hands just as he said he would. All right, now, I have never been in a battle. I've never faced a giant so I can't really speak to God giving me any kind of victory, let alone, let alone against someone like Goliath. After this victory, the people, the ladies, they sing their praises of David. They even make up a song about David, even though it's not really true that David has slain his tens of thousands compared to Saul's thousands. I mean, sure, he had defeated Goliath, and as a result, the Philistines, but he had only slain one man, even if it was a really big man. He had not even slain hundreds at this point. They call this poetic expression. But what it did is it, it made Saul become jealous of David. He was angry. He was not happy. And he kept a close eye, a fearful eye, on David from that point on. And even though the words weren't true sometimes, lies, exaggerations, can get out of control and change the course of someone's life. In this instance, this lie, this embellishment turned Saul against David. Saul saw that David was a man after God's own heart, that the Lord was with David. But he also saw that the Lord was no longer with him. 
And now Saul needed to go after David because David was having success in everything that he did. And it wasn't like Saul wasn't having success, that he wasn't a good king. After all, he did reign for 40 years. But the problem was, is the Lord was no longer with him. And there was this evil spirit that would come upon Saul. And as a result, Saul would try and kill David. But David would always escape. So eventually, Saul brought in others to try and get David killed. He needed to take David out no matter the cost. So he'd send him out into battle in hopes that that would do the trick, that he would die there. But God was with David. And every attempt of Saul to destroy David's life failed. And even Jonathan, Saul's son, and David's best friend, couldn't understand his father because David had saved Israel. Saul had rejoiced when David defeated Goliath, but now, well, now he wants to kill David without cause, without reason. Well, we know the reason was jealousy and fear and thinking that David was going to take Saul's throne. But you could say that those seeds were first planted with the Song of the Women after David defeated Goliath. In the end, David has to flee the land, and he goes to the Philistines. And then he even acts like a madman to keep himself safe amongst his other enemies, who would have recognized him as the giant killer, right? The one who slayed Goliath. Now, I don't know all of the things that you go through in life. I mean, I know some of the things that you go through, but not everything, especially if you don't tell me. So I don't know if you've ever been the center of an embellishment, an exaggeration, something that wasn't true. I don't know if you've ever been the center of a lie, and it ended up turning people against you, made people even want to destroy you or your life as a result. I'm going to be very honest with you. I'm not the perfect pastor. I'm not the perfect husband. I'm not the perfect father. I'm not a perfect person in any sense of the word. And these last number of years have been hard. I think that they've been hard on all of us. From a personal side, from the church side. Things are different. Things are not the same. Things are not what they looked like even four years ago. And maybe they'll look like the way that they used to one day. Maybe they won't. Maybe the church will recover. Maybe it won't. Here's what I know. Satan is at work in this place. If you remember, I said last week that Satan is only going to attack those who believe because he wants to take away, destroy your faith. If you don't believe in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he has no reason to attack you because he already has you. And so Satan is going to go where the true believers are. Martin Luther once said that 
For where God built a church, there the devil would also build a chapel. Wherever God builds his church, Satan builds a chapel right next to it. So if you want to know where Satan is, he's set up shop all around us. And he's going to work through people. He's going to give you exaggerations and embellishments and lies. And he's going to get other people to give you exaggerations and embellishments and lies in the hopes that you'll believe the embellishments and exaggerations and lies. In the hopes that you'll believe them and then tell other people these embellishments and exaggerations and lies. And that they'll believe it. And he's doing it to try and destroy the faith. To try and destroy Christ's church. Because he hates Christ and he hates Christ's church. He hates you. And he hates me. And he wants others to feel the same. And in trying to destroy your faith, he wants you to hate those who follow Christ. He's trying to make you into Saul and everyone else and everything else into David so that you will hate and as a result, attack and try to destroy and kill. So what do you do if you hear the lies of Satan? If you hear the lies of the church, if you hear the lies about a pastor, if you hear the lies about another member, if you're not sure if these lies are actual lies and you believe them to be true, make sure you do your due diligence. If you hear something about someone, talk to that someone, not another person, and find out the whole story. Go to the source. Don't believe every word you hear. And that includes me. Again, I'm not perfect. Just like I will say that you shouldn't just take my word for things, especially things that are proclaimed here in your midst. Make sure you check them with God's word if you're not sure, if they seem to be off to you. Satan works through Christians and non-Christians alike because they have one thing in common. They're both sinners. They both sin. They both make mistakes. They are prone to temptation. And so Satan will use whoever he can. So if you hear something like, I paid off the dunk tank company last week so that I wouldn't have to go in. <laughs> Check the source to know whether it's true or not. I know that's a funny example. Thank you all for laughing. But there were multiple people that came to me and said that very thing. In a joking manner, of course. But there are examples that you're going to hear that are not funny. And that are not being said in a joking manner and are much more believable. But then again, maybe you believe the dunk tank one is possible. Let me again be honest with you for a moment. I'm a sinner. And because I am a sinner, I will always be a sinner while I am here on this earth. I am also a liar. And I will have a temptation to lie. I have lied in the past for sure. 
I lied for three straight years of my life as a teenager, telling people that I was okay, that I wasn't anorexic, that I was actually eating, that I was a Christ follower. When I wasn't okay, and I wasn't anorexic, and I wasn't eating, and I was not following Christ. Satan built his chapel right next to me, and I invited him into my house, and I let him control me. And I do that every time I sin and give into temptation. I let Satan have his way with me. So I'm going to sin before you. I'm going to fail. I'm going to let you down. And you know, I stand before you today unworthy. Unworthy of the life that I've been given. Unworthy of the beautiful wife and ever so precious children, no matter how big pains in the butt they can be. <laughs> Unworthy of the calling that I've received as a pastor. Unworthy to stand before you and give you Christ's gifts. His word. His forgiveness. His supper. Baptism. What I am worthy of? His death. That's the punishment my sins deserve. That's the punishment my lies deserve. And I am accountable to Christ for all of my actions, for all of my sins, for all of my lies. And I stand before him being worthy only of death, of condemnation, of hell. And the same is true for you too for your sins. You are only worthy of death, of condemnation, of hell. So what do we do? Well, Martin Luther said, when Satan tells me I am a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably since Christ died for sinners. Christ died for sinners. For liars, for adulterers, for thieves, for cheaters, for every sinner that ever lived. He died for believers. He died for non-believers. He died for you. And he died for me. He died for the sins of all people, for the lies, for the lusts, for the selfishness, for the envy, for the jealousy, for the hatred, for the greed, for all sinners' sins. So what do we do? We look to the cross. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who came for us. We find comfort in the one who loved us so much that he died for you and for your sin, and he died for me and for my sin, so that we would not suffer death, condemnation, hell, even though we are very deserving of it. We find joy in the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the pain, the agony, the suffering of the cross for us. The one who took death, our death, the one who took our condemnation, our punishment, our hell, in order to bring us forgiveness, to bring us life, to bring us salvation. And we find hope in the empty tomb because with it comes the promise that because Christ lives, we will live also. 
And because he has defeated sin, death, and the devil, we will also. You know what else? He's given us the Holy Spirit in baptism, through the word, in faith, so that we can combat the lies of Satan with the word of God. In fact, that's Jesus' strategy. When Jesus is tempted, Satan says to him, as one example, hey, Jesus, throw yourself off of the temple because God's word says that he's going to catch you. He's not going to let you fall, not going to let you hurt yourself. And Jesus responds with, well, God's word also said, don't put him to the test. And jumping off the temple would be putting the Lord to the test. So thanks, but no thanks. So when Satan comes along and uses the same old temptation, did God actually say? Because I heard this. Respond with, hold on, Satan. Let me check what God actually said. So too with people. Hey, did Pastor Glenn actually say and do this and this? Hey, did, uh, did Sherry actually say and do this and this? Hey, did Bill actually say and do this and this? Because this is what I heard. Well, I mean, Pastor Glenn did just tell us that he's a liar in his sermon. And I guess that means he's capable of, you know, these things, so... It's probably true, right? And if it's probably true for Pastor Glenn, it's probably true for Bill and Sherry as well. Because that is super great and uplifting and encouraging and strengthening to the body of Christ, right? No. It's not. But that is exactly what Satan wants. To destroy the church and its people. So when those things come before us, we say, hold on, Satan. Let me check with them before believing it as truth. And then I'm going to pray that whatever I hear, God gives me wisdom and discernment. I told you earlier how I let Satan into my house to control me. Well, Martin Luther was once asked how he overcame the devil. And he replied, Well, when he comes knocking upon the door of my heart and asks who lives here, the dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he has moved on. Now I live here. The devil, seeing the nail prints in the hands and the pierced side, takes flight immediately. We can take a page out of Martin Luther's book. We can take a page out of David's book. And not fear, not be afraid, because the Lord is with us, because he is on our side, living in us, working in us to give us strength and wisdom and discernment and to send the devil fleeing. Christ is greater than the devil. And we know this is true because he has defeated the devil through his death and resurrection. And we also have nothing to fear because this is God's church. This is Christ's church. And this is a church that has been washed 
cleansed, redeemed by the blood of Christ. Washed, cleansed, redeemed in the waters of baptism. Washed, cleansed, redeemed in the Lord's Supper. Washed, cleansed, redeemed in the words of absolution. Washed, cleansed, redeemed through the word in faith by the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And I know that God's on my side. And I know that he's on your side. And as a result, I, you, have nothing to fear. And we know that not even the gates of hell shall prevail against Christ and his church. Amen. Now the peace of God which passes all understanding. Guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.